right now, at this moment, as I am speaking to you, the Earth is spinning on its axis at a speed of about a thousand miles per hour. Enough force that if gravity were arranged just a little differently, we could possibly be tossed off of its face. And yet here I am. And if that were not enough, while the Earth spins on its axis at this speed, the Earth is hurtling in an arc around the sun in the direction of the star Aldebaran at a speed of 68,000 miles per hour. And while that is happening, the sun itself that we are orbiting is moving around its neighbor stars at a speed of 34,000 miles per hour. And if that were not enough, this arm of the galaxy we are existing in is also hurtling around in an orbit around its center at a further 80,000 miles per hour. And for those of us who get queasy just riding on roller coasters, how do we not spend every day as just nausea on legs, my god? Meanwhile, I, who need to know where I am at all times, how can I possibly know in a system that works this way where I am? I mean, sure, standing on the chancel of the Unitarian Church of Los Alamos, of course, but where is my place in this universe? Constantly shifting at these great speeds, never quite certain of where I am? No, nope, unacceptable, unacceptable. Better if I just put myself at the center of things. Right? The Earth sits at the center, which means humanity is at the center, and everything revolves around us. This is the way things should be. It is much more manageable. I can think about it without wanting to lose my mind. And hey, why don't I take that a step further? Why don't I just go ahead and say that me is at the center of it all. Why don't I just place myself at the center of all things? That is very manageable. That is knowledge I can deal with. And Galileo, who are you to tell me the Earth is revolving around the sun? You take that back. Which is what the church asked him to do. The church taught with no argument that the earth stood at the center of all things, and Galileo comes along and just knocks everything off its axis. And so they handed him a statement to read, rejecting everything he had been talking about, and at the same time, as the legend goes, he puts his hand on the ground, even as he finishes, and says, I per si muove and still it moves. The facts do not care what you think about them or not. Now, that piece of the legend might be apocryphal, and it's probably a pretty good bet that nobody in the room, least of all Galileo, really believed that he honestly believed what he was saying as he recanted his teachings. And it's even possible that some of the church fathers in that room with him had some doubts about the Earth being at the center of the universe. After all, the idea of a heliocentric universe, of the Earth orbiting around the sun, was not new to Galileo. 
Greek mathematicians have been positing this idea as far back as three centuries before Jesus was born. That idea had been floating out there. But it throws everything off its axis. It throws everything off that we know about where we are and our place in the universe. And after all, the church was very concerned about the place of humanity in the universe. And if it's not at the center, where is it? And does anything else matter? Does anything else matter in a universe that spins about itself at such great speeds at all times? No. Better to keep things at the center where we know we are. Knowledge feels a lot like control. We know what we know. And if we know it, then perhaps we can have some sort of control over the chaos that we know surrounds us, even if we don't want to admit to it. But that control of the world around us, that control of the universe we live in, that control is an illusion. It doesn't matter how much we know about everything around us, there is still so little we actually have control over. Sure, we can split the atom, but we still don't know how to tell where every particle of it is at any one moment. Sure, we can understand the mechanics of how the atmosphere works to create the weather patterns that we live with every day, but we still haven't figured out to, you know, fire a laser up there and make it snow when we want it to snow and rain when we want it to rain and be nice and sunny when we want it to be nice and sunny. We can understand things still without having control. But that illusion of control is a siren song. It is very attractive. We want to know so we can have control. And when we follow that path of desiring control of our universe, of telling ourselves we can know it all, we fall into this trap of what we call idolatry of the mind. A belief that the human mind is so spectacular. And make no mistake, the human mind is capable of amazing things. But the human mind is so spectacular that it can have all the answers eventually. If it works hard enough, we can answer all of the questions. All of them. The thing is that idolatry of the mind recenters humanity. It puts us back in the middle of the universe again. It calls back to what the church was trying to do with Galileo. Stop knocking us off our axis, gal. If we follow that pathway too deep down, we start to privilege our personal experience over the collective experience of all of us. Now, I don't think the climate is warming. It was 18 degrees outside this morning when I got up. Idolatry of the mind demands 
submission to authority, which is really what the church was concerned about when it demanded that Galileo recant. They weren't saying, stop teaching that thing that we know is not a fact. They were saying, Galileo, submit to what we teach you. Part of that desire for control is often a desire to be able to exert control over others as well. Not just over the universe around us, but over others around us as well. Submit to an authority that paints a picture and a point of view of a cosmos that benefits, let's say, me the most. And that, for sure, is the source of some climate change denial. It's going to be too expensive to admit the truth of what's happening, so we're just going to stick with what we know. And worst of all, idolatry of the mind, if we walk that pathway too far, starts to choke off new exploration. If we set what we know into stone, if we create a list of knowledge that is all human knowledge and that is it, man, that is the end of it, don't change it, don't add to it, don't follow down that path. We just got this chaos cleaned up. John, stop messing up the room again. If we set what we know into stone, it replaces curiosity with certainty. And certainty is the mind killer, not fear. The path of curiosity is a lot more interesting. It is a lot more lively. The path of curiosity is how we come to know exactly what it is that we don't know. And there is so much we don't know. Take the simple snowflake, for example. Always six-sided, always in this near-perfect symmetry why does a snowflake arrange itself in the way that it does? And why is there so much variety in the way that snowflakes form themselves? In about 1610, Johannes Kepler wrote a small treatise on the formation of snowflakes, trying to come to an answer about them as a gift to one of his patrons who wanted the answer. And it was a very, very short treatise because he was only able to figure out a few things. Why are snowflakes six-sided? Well, he concludes, a hexagon is a natural shape of economy in nature. There's an economy to the geometry of it. It's what happens to a sphere when you compress lots of them together. They turn into more of a hexagonal shape. So obviously, a natural event like a snowflake is going to latch on to that form. But why it does that? how it forms, why the symmetry is so near perfect. Kepler concludes, I don't know. Somebody else will figure that out. And over the centuries, we have figured that out, some of it more, at least. We've learned a lot about how a snowflake forms itself. 
We know because of the arrangement of hydrogen and oxygen atoms in a molecule that the shape of those molecules kind of forces the issue of the hexagonal shape and the way that it crystallizes. And we know that there's some dust and cosmic debris that is involved in the formation of snowflake because it crystallizes around these microscopic pieces of dust floating through our atmosphere. So without our current place in the cosmos, who knows how a snowflake might form if it would even form in the same way. But every time we answer a question, more questions arise and the snowflake in the process gets to remain wondrous. Chet Ramo is the Emeritus Professor of Engineering at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. For decades, he wrote the Science Musings column for the Boston Globe, and he still continues those essays today in his own blog. And he's also something of a religious naturalist, a scientific mystic. In his book, Honey from Stone, he muses on these snowflakes, talks about Kepler and what he didn't know, and talks about what this means for us, the simple snowflake, what we know and what we don't know, and what it means for our place in the universe. I have a friend, he writes, who speaks of knowledge as an island in a sea of mystery. It is a lovely image. Let this then be the ground of my faith. All that we know now and forever, all scientific knowledge that we have of this world or will or ever will have is an island in this sea. Say what you can about minimum free energy, increasing entropy, lattice vibrations and crystal symmetry. Say all that you can about atoms and valences and hydrogen bonds. Calculate with exquisite finesse the quantum mechanical wave function of a single electron in a crystal of ice, and the snowflake will rebuke still our ignorance. We live, he continues, in our partial knowledge as the Dutch live on polders claimed from the sea. We dike and fill, we dredge up soil from the bed of the mystery and build ourselves room to grow on it. And still, the mystery surrounds us. It laps our shores, it permeates the land. Scratch the surface of knowledge and mystery bubbles up like a spring. And occasionally, at certain disquieting moments in history, Aristarchus, Galileo, Planck, and Einstein, a tempest of mystery comes rolling in from the sea and overwhelms our efforts, reclaims knowledge that has been built up by years of patient work, and forces us to retreat to the surest, most secure core of what we know, where we huddle in fear trembling until the storm subsides. And then we start building again, throwing up dikes, pumping, filling, extending the perimeter of our knowledge and our security. We live on an 
island in a sea of mystery. And for every answer we uncover, curious as we are, a thousand more questions arise. With every minute mote of certainty, more and more chaos abounds. And living in the midst of all that, it would be easy to fall into this sense of nihilism that grows out of the knowledge of just how deep down our ignorance really goes. The human experiment in religion is one means in which we try to hold back that tide of nihilism, that sense that there is no purpose amidst all the chaos. It is an attempt to respond to the chaos around us. And there are two main branches of religious thought, more than that, but we'll go with two today. One school of thought unwittingly feeds more into that nihilism the more it tries to hold it at bay. It is the religion that tries to maintain that illusion of control, the sort of religion that says, this is the way the universe is, and everything we don't understand belongs to some kind of deity. And if you try to answer the questions outside the codex of knowledge we give you, you are trying to be God and should be shunned. And in the process, we create a system where some of us are in and some of us are out. That control belongs to a few and the rest of us are relegated to the chaos. It winds up becoming a slightly more dangerous version of nihilism because it buys into the idea that some of us don't matter in all of this. And that not mattering, perhaps, is something that requires action. That's one way to go. The other way is this. We embrace our curiosity. We embrace, as we say in our own Unitarian Universalist sources, that transcendent wonder and mystery. We set up camp on the shores of that island and we figure out what it is that we're doing there and we learn to live in harmony with the mystery and the chaos around us and say, despite all of this, despite the fact that everything is spinning seemingly out of control or at least beyond our understanding, somehow when nothing should matter in the middle of all this, all of a sudden, everything matters. We matter. All of us. We know that we could know everything there is to know about a snowflake someday, and still we know we'll be able to look at it with wonder and with awe. Let that wonder lead us towards newer and more shifting answers. Replace the old answers that don't serve us quite as well anymore. 
the mysteries of the cosmos around us and our place within it exist independently of our acknowledgement of the realities. And still it moves. That sense of wonder and the way we approach it in the face of the mystery, in the face of that chaos, that is the thing that will save us as a species, as a planet, as a system, not just from the oncoming natural disasters that we know are coming, but from the nihilism that devalues all of us. That is the great mystery. That the universe is this ever-expanding, ever-exploding ball of chaos, and that somehow, in the midst of all this, we have come to exist. And better still, we have come to persist. That we do not know with any certainty where we stand in the universe at any one time. We only know we are not the center of it all, and yet somehow, still not being the center, we live, and we love, and we matter. We find our connections, and we know they will save us. How? It's a mystery. But let us not close ourselves off to the answer. Let us stand before the mystery with all we have yet to know, and let wonder lead us into a deeper understanding. Maybe so.